You are about to listen to the full interview with M. Neil Brown. Sections of it were originally included in our Legally Haunted House episode. Neil is an economics professor at Bowling Green University and co-author of the book The Legal Environment of Business, which includes a section on the case. Neil spoke with us about the legal theories behind the case and its lasting implications. We hope you enjoy. My name is Neil Brown, and I'm uh, several things. I'm a lawyer, and um, I don't practice. I, I do teach law, and I'm the author of the co-author of three legal textbooks. And uh, I also have a PhD in economics, and so I uh, I teach econ and have for five decades. And uh, I also am a writer. If you if you count the various editions, I've written 64 books. Uh, primarily books about uh, law and economics, but also I, or at least my editor tells me, I have the best-selling critical thinking text in the world. It's in um, 16 different uh, languages and uh, 12th, 12th edition. So I have done a lot of consulting and a lot of court testimony for uh, being an expert witness about the quality of evidence that somebody has or the uh, extent to which certain other expert witnesses are really qualified to provide the statistics that they're offering. So I do I do a lot of things. Yeah, I feel like that's a very interesting background for uh, what we are talking about today and the reason we reached out to you. So what is your uh, connection to the Stamboski v. Ackley legally haunted house case? Uh, when did you hear first hear about it and kind of your reaction to that? So when you're writing a textbook for college students, you're looking for material that ideally would exemplify or explore the complexities of a particular legal principle. But that's not enough, not for a textbook that students are going to read. So you also are looking for anything that is going to titillate the interest of very, very um, popular culture-oriented age cohorts. So, you know, when you, when you, um, when you find some kind of a, of a case about uh, Madonna, or Taylor Swift, um, you don't use it, you don't put that in the book just because it's about them, but if there's some legal principle that it's more than just tangentially related to, it becomes a high prospect. Now, you read a case about a haunted house. There are, I think I counted last night when I was doing some research, there are over 400 cases, just federal cases, not state cases, there are over 400 cases that mention haunted houses. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot of haunted house legal literature. But the primary literature is not so much along the same lines as uh, the case that we're talking about today, the Stamboski case. But most of the time, what the legal cases are about is, does does a haunted house or the owners of a haunted house, do they have liability to people who get hurt as a result of their being in the haunted house? So, for example, just to give you a couple, three examples of cases. So you have a, 
a man who comes to a, to a commercial enterprise, a haunted house, and uh, he gets scared and he starts running out of the house. And one of the actors who is playing a uh, person that has a, a gas-operated chainsaw that's on, that's running, and this actor who's playing this role he gets a, he gets a little excited when the guy takes off running and he chases him with the chainsaw and then so this is like a sorry to interrupt but this is like a haunted house like you go it, to to Halloween exactly where exactly yeah got it and and that and and so then the person falls down and injures himself and he files a court action and there are there are literally a couple hundred of those cases. And that's not really the same kind of haunted house you're talking about in the Stambovsky case. But yeah, do you what, know of do ahead. you know of any cases that are like a haunted house that somebody says that there is a haunting in? Do you know of any other other than the uh, Stambovsky Ackley case? No, I don't. And and remember the the, the New York court system is kind of strange the the first court you go to is the supreme court so you know we're accustomed to thinking a supreme court is like that so that's the final court in the land but in new york the actual court of first instance in other words the court you go to first is the supreme court and um the supreme court of new york who heard the stambovsky case first uh dismissed it and they dismissed it in large part because they said, well, it doesn't, why are you here? We, we don't understand the cause of action because they searched too in their legal records and they couldn't find any other cases as well. So they're basically like, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm really not sure why you're in here. So they dismissed it. And it's interesting because um, the judge who wrote the, the dismissal opinion said, that he thought that it didn't seem fair what happened to Stambowski, but he didn't know of any law against what happened, and he didn't know of any previous case law. So that really suggests that there may not well be other cases like Stambowski. Also, too, I should tell you, Stambowski is a famous case that's almost never cited. And, and I'll, I'll be happy to explain why it's almost never cited, never cited in legal literature. It's never cited as president. And I'll tell you why if you want to know. But I guess the, the point that I wanted to make right now is that Stambovsky's a really famous case because it's in law textbooks. And it's in law textbooks because, come on, haunted house. This yeah, is, it's a great this story. Is interesting, you know, this is. This is adventure. This is, uh, uh, are these people crazy who see ghosts? Or is there so much confirm, com confirming evidence that you're halfway enticed into thinking that there are ghosts? Why isn't it cited more often? I mean, I you brought that up, so I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, it's not cited uh, much at all. In fact, I, I found it cited in... Uh, 11 cases. I went back for, for as, from the inception of the case. Okay, so this is going to require something um, 
lengthy, and if you want me to break it into parts, just interrupt me. Okay, so so this is a this is the case in the United States, duh. And 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 I say that because if this case were in any other country, I write a lot of comparative law articles. And if this were in any other of the, let's say, European countries or in Japan, this case would be cited all the time. Well, why is it not cited in the United States? Well, it's not cited in the United States because the United States legal system is a reflection of being in America. And America is, for better or worse, an extremely right-wing country. And that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it is an extremely right-wing country. And what do I mean by that? I mean that property interests have a huge advantage over non-property interests when you go to when you go to court in the United States. Traditionally, in United States law, and in fact, you can see the dissenters used exactly this reasoning in the case. The two dissenters, the the basic rule of life in the marketplace in the United States, unlike in other countries that are are uh, developed countries anyway, the basic rule is, well, buyer beware, caveat emptor. And, and what that means is, look, as a consumer, you're supposed to be a rational, intelligent chooser who does their due diligence, who checks out all of the relevant characteristics of whatever it is you're buying, whether you're talking about hamburger meat, whether you're talking about a house, or whether you're talking about 92 acres in upper New York State. Your job as a consumer is is to be responsible as an individual and check it out. If that's the basic rule of law, and it is, the Stambovsky decision is really unusual. It's unusual because the, the, the uh, majority of the judges said, okay, ordinarily caveat emptor applies. But in a spirit of fairness, and the way lawyers say that is in equity courts, and what that is is a reference to ancient courts that supplemented legal courts by taking certain kinds of maxims of fairness and some rules of fairness. And if you wanted to, you could have your case heard in equity court or you could have it heard in a court of law. And uh, almost everybody's abandoned these equity courts now all over the world. But when judges want to, remember these judges are humans and they they have uh, orientation, some of them more left-wing than others. Some are more right-wing than others. And when left-wing judges see something like this case, they're going, that's not fair. That's not fair. She sold him a house, but actually what she really sold him was a house and a reputation of the house. And because she sold him the reputation as well as the house, she didn't say a damn thing about the reputation. She's engaged in what the court called active concealment. And so in the interest of fairness, following the principles of equity law, we find that in this case, 
caveat emptor doesn't apply. Well, a case that does that's not going to be cited very much because in this judicial system in the United States, the seller is given preference. And so the seller is expected to be this super rational, super intelligent person who does due diligence. Let me give you an illustration. So my wife and I have had 17 houses. So you'd think, well, these people, they must know a lot about houses. Well, we know some things about houses. We're, we're, we're highly educated in a formal way, but we don't know anything about the construction business. Well, Neil Brown and his wife lost $100,000 on a real estate deal. How did we lose that? Well, we lost that because the owner didn't tell us that there was a that there was a, a a material that was used as insulation that is so dangerous that many insurance companies won't even insure a house like that. So when we found eventually when we sold the house and we tried to sell it and a wise realtor would come by, they'd go, oh, but this is a house that has ethos. And we go, ethos, what's that? And then I, I did the legal research and I found there were 65,000 EFIS cases in South Carolina alone. But I didn't know anything about EFIS. I'd never heard of the word in my life. And it cost us $100,000. Well, in the United States, well, that's on you, Jack. You know, you, if you're so stupid as to buy a house that has EFIS inside the stucco, and, it's a, and it is a, a danger in terms of mold, Sometimes you have to actually have to rip off the whole exterior of a house to replace the ethos. And you didn't know that? What's wrong with you? you know, are, are you a functioning adult? Well, I don't know whether I am or not, but I can tell you one thing. In the United States, courts are not going to be very generous to me when I go into court and ask for damages because a realtor did not explain to me that this house has ethos. In my case, I even had a buyer's agent, so he has a fiduciary duty. Well, he violated the fiduciary duty. But the court says to me, well, why didn't you notice that he was violating the fiduciary duty? Well, because I didn't know what EFIS was. So that's just an illustration of why Stambowski isn't going to get cited very much, because Stambowski is inconsistent. The ruling is inconsistent with the prevailing legal doctrine, which is individual responsibility. Yeah, that's interesting you say that um, because let, let's say in this particular case, Helen Ackley had actually uh, written a Reader's Digest story about it being haunted, uh, about the home being haunted. She, she claims and her daughter claims, we spoke with her daughter, that they actually did casually mention to him that it was haunted. How would that figure into the buyer beware? Because that seems to me, at least, that they had notified him as much as they thought they should, you know, because I think everybody hears spirits, ghosts. It's kind of a silly thing. And I think that that's how they kind of mention how it was told as if it was kind of tossed off. To him. There's a whole bunch of things to say, I think, in response to that. First, it's not just a silly thing. 
that house uh, sold. Let's see. I have the. I looked up to see how much that sold for. The last time it sold, one point eight million dollars. That's six hundred thousand dollars more than Comparator's value in Nyack. So lots of people see having that house as an amazing conversational point and as an opportunity to, to explore poltergeist or whatever. But that house, the value of that house is enhanced, not subtracted from by the fact that it's allegedly a, a ghost house. So the reputation of that house is crucial to its value. Now she says, and, and the court records I saw said, they, they recognize that she said that we mentioned it to him. I don't think the court believed her. If the court believed her, then he has no case. So the court didn't believe her. Now they don't say in the decision why they didn't believe her, I don't know. I think one thing that happens in a situation like that, she has every reason in the world after the fact to say, well, we told him. Uh, and, I, and I think the court, if, if, she had, if she had had a diary and she had said, on this date, we mentioned to him that, that this is a ghost house, if she had any kind of evidence only other than just her saying that she remembers telling him, I think this case would have, would have been decided very differently. But what happened was the court referred to her behavior as active concealment. She had told lots of people, not only Reader's Digest, that house was part of a tour of city houses, because there are several ghost houses in that community. And and she had been she had been part of a city tour that was being used as a tourist attraction. Lots of people in Nyack, now remember this is only seven thousand people at the time. Lots of people in Nyack knew about it. Probably most people in Nyack knew about it. But Stambovsky's in New York City. And Stambovsky and, and so you're really asking the question, does Stambovsky have a responsibility to be knowledgeable about Reader's Digest articles? Does Stambovsky have a responsibility to be knowledgeable about local culture and lo local cultural events in Nyack? And, and, uh, and American law, again and again, will place the responsibility back on that buyer because they'll say, well, he should have known. Interesting, interesting. So uh, one thing that you mentioned was that it being a haunted house actually increases its value. Uh, Jeff Stambowski's argument initially was that it decreased the value. Well, for for the him, home. it did. In other words, you take, you take your buyers as they are, not as you wish they were. And in his particular case, he didn't want anything to do with the house. I mean, after he found out, he wanted he wanted he wanted his down payment back. He wanted to have nothing to do with that house. However, many people were calling. They wanted the house exactly for the reason that he didn't want the house. 
Should do you think that she should have just sold it to somebody else who wanted it because it was haunted? I mean, I mean, why not? You know, I mean, she could, she could, she could take take the money and run. I mean, she's she's got a good thing going there. She's got she has uh, her daughter involved. She has her daughter's suitor involved. So you've got multiple people who are claiming various kinds of visitations, various kinds of, uh, you know, the only potential, potentially hostile action of any poltergeist in that particular story is the, the suitor of the daughter. And, the, and, and the actually has a simple answer to that. And that's just that the, the, the uh, ghost was checking out the quality of the suitor to see if the suitor was up to the task, was worthy of the daughter. So you've got stories, you've got multiple people. Uh, I mean, sell the house. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned that, uh, you know, this was all kicked off by Jeff Stamboski wanting his down payment back. And it was pretty late in the process, actually. What initially legal ground did he have to demand his down payment back if any uh and then initially what was helen ackley's legal ground to uh keep the down payment well for one thing and this is very confusing to me when i was looking at the case more down payment is distinguished from earnest money in the legal literature by the following, a down payment is money that is given to, a, is, is, is money that serves as a promise to a lender. So that's your down payment. Earnest money is money that you give to the prospective seller as an indication that you're not just saying you want the house, but that you want to reserve the house and you're willing to risk putting up part of your money, it's called earnest money, in order to, to make sure other people don't buy the house ahead of you. Well, the strange thing is, again, if you, if you give money to Helen, that's called earnest money, but it seems like in, in these conversations in the, in the case, they were called down payment. So I don't know if there's just some kind of special usage in that part of New York or what, but that uh, that struck me as really strange because uh, real estate law in general uses the distinction that I just gave. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Cynthia, who is Helen's daughter, said that the money was earnest money. But it sounds like when you're looking at the case file, that it's being used kind of interchangeably, and that seems like it is not maybe normal that's at all. It's really not normal. And in fact, it would be a very rare lawyer who would be comfortable with anything other than that distinction that I gave you. Now, 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 you said, what are the grounds for each of the parties feeling the way they did about the let's let's call it what I think it was, which is earnest earnest money. I I assume we're talking. I figured it out. It's five percent. So, I. I don't know if if mortgagors were l lending money at 5% at the time for a house. I doubt it. That sounds more like earnest money to me. But so the question is, well, 
what right do you have to have the money back? Okay, so this is this is an action in rescission, and that's a that's a contract term meaning we want this contract to be declared no longer valid. So we want this contract to, in effect, never have existed. Now, when you give somebody earnest money, the standard for whether you get your earnest money back or not is whether the person you gave the interest, the uh, earnest money to, has behaved in a reasonable and fair fashion. So with that with that degree of flexibility, a court can go about any way it wants to. And and remember, and this is something I think people don't appreciate enough about courts. Courts are not made up of robots. Courts are made up of people with all the variety of attitudes value orientations that people have so if you're a if you're a, a plaintiff let's say in a civil action you commonly want a jury because you think that a jury would be more sympathetic to you to your argument than a judge because judges have heard it all they've heard everything under the sun but a jury is new and you can make all kinds of arguments related to pity that will impress a jury that a judge would just yawn while listening to. Uh, when you have language like, well, you get your money back if Ackley behaved in a manner that was unreasonable and or unfair, well, that gives a lot of latitude for judges to go any way they want. And they do. Uh, and we know that who the judge is, what time of day the judge makes the ruling, is usually determinative. Uh, when you look at um, criminal cases, if you're a lawyer, you don't want your client to be sentenced any time after 3 o'clock. Because when you look at the data, the data are markedly dramatic in saying that judges after three o'clock are thinking about going home and they're not in a good mood. The, the day is over for them. And, 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 and they tend to give harsher sentences for the same crime that if the sentence were at 10 a.m. when they're fresh, just had some good orange juice, they're very likely to give a lesser sentence for identical facts. And this has been done in laboratories. This has been done looking at actual case law over the course of many years. And my point is, judges are human. And so, the, the, you know, there's something in the law called forum shopping. And forum shopping means you try as a lawyer to get your case heard by a forum, that means a location and a judge, that is favorable to your kind of cases. So, for example, if I had a client and it was, let's say, a personal injury case, I would never, ever want the case to be tried in a agricultural region. And the reason for that is, is because agricultural cultures 
are much more oriented toward individual responsibility and they tend to give much lower grants of damages to clients. So if I'm a lawyer and I can get access to, let's say, Pittsburgh courts or even Kansas City courts, instead of some community that has only 10,000 people in it, I would do it all day long. That's called forum shopping. And so I think that the, the community needs to recognize that the law, as it is determined, it's very human. It's not something that's, uh, well, they go to school for a long time and they're very august and deserving of respect. And, and uh, they have these rules that are really not motivated by human passions and so forth. That's crazy talk. I mean, you must not know anything about judges. Uh, some judges correctly have images as hanging judges. Uh, other judges are much more understanding when somebody does something wrong. They're much more compassionate. They tend to look for some kind of a method of handling the case so that there is some punishment but overwhelmingly some avenue by which this person can have this whole process erased because we think that they were in unfair circumstances. I mean, that's what Les Miserables is about, right? We go to, we go to, and we see that. Well, you know, going into the humanness of judges, in fact, the final ruling from the New York Supreme court, it's, pretty tongue-in-cheek it's pretty funny going into that as kind of what was their ruling why use the kind of language that the judge did and kind of what did that final ruling mean well the the reason the language uh is used and uh there are cases like that in all areas of law where judges just decide let's have fun with the language so you're writing, you're, you know, you're writing a decision about a haunted house. So, of course, you're going to say, we want to make a ruling that doesn't haunt us in our later years. You know, you just say that because it's funny and it's, it's not inconsistent with the way you're going to rule. You're playing with words. Uh, legal decisions are very logocentric. They're very word-oriented. And uh, they're just being playful. That's all. There's, there's no other, there's no hidden agenda behind using that kind of language. You know, what, it, what the ruling in the, in the case does is it violates a standard way of thinking about disputes between buyers and sellers. Because it basically says we're going to take fairness into consideration when we make a decision. We're not just going to say that the person had a, a personal responsibility to figure out what kind of house is this? What kind of reputation does it have? We're going to say, is it really realistic to expect a person to know what's in Reader's Digest and to remember what the story said, even if they are familiar with the Reader's Digest? Is it really fair 
to expect a, uh, a person from New York to know what's happening in NIAC. And so <laughs> what the judges are doing here is probably if you moved to a jurisdiction that was um, perhaps composed of a different ethnic group than the people in NIAC, you would get a different decision. That, that, in other words, that decision is that that plaintiff got really lucky. It, you know, it's just fortunately uh, they got the three judges that they had because that could have so easily gone in a different direction. Uh, incidentally, I think that this case, just in terms of poltergeist, this case, when when the judges say, as a matter of law, this house is haunted, what they mean by that is, we're not going to allow the seller to say, we were just kidding. We're not because she took $3,000 from Reader's Digest and she's also had newspaper interviews and she's had these, these house tours in the community. She has behaved as if there are poltergeists and therefore we're going to hold her to it. Therefore, as a matter of law, not because we're saying there are poltergeists in the house, but as a matter of law, we're going to base our decision on the fact that she was selling one kind of house to him, given what he knew, or at least claims to know. And she actually had a different kind of house. She had a house and she also had a house that was haunted, haunted by reputation. Whether there's poltergeist, you know, we leave it to you. I believe in it, they also mentioned that Ackley uh, couldn't sell the house because it's occupied by spirits um, is one line in it. Yep. Yep. Would that be yep. more just a joking yep. line they that they to tossed the off or what would that mean? <laughs> I mean, it's so fun. I mean, they even drop who you're going to call from Ghostbusters in that. I know, isn't it sometimes called the Ghostbusters ruling? Oh, often. That's what it's known as. Yeah. So I know you've said that it's not cited very often did it have any kind of immediate effects on real estate law or and does it still stand to well when this day? did it have an effect on real estate law if if a judge wanted to make a decision that that the judge knows is not in the rich tradition of american legal habit and and wanted to say Oh, I have such deep respect for caveat emptor, but in this particular case, it is so outrageous that I want to, just in this one case now, I'm not going to do it many times, but in this one case, I'm, I'm going to say that caveat emptor is put back on the shelf, and instead we're going to decide in fairness, and that's the language they're going to use, in fairness, we want to decide that the plaintiff has a valid complaint against the defendant. So it stands as legal precedent, should a judge ever be so inclined to say, caveat emptor doesn't apply here. But 
you know, you have to have some cojones to say that as a judge because you know that American law is consistent with caveat emptor. So you're really sticking your nose out. And one thing judges don't like, and that's to be overturned. Because when they're overturned, it's basically saying, what are you smoking, judge? What, 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 you know, what, what are you doing? Uh, so they're not going to, it's going to be a rare judge who has the strength, the personality that they're going to take a legal principle like caveat emptor and uh, just say, well, in this case, it doesn't apply. And that's what they did here. Do you know if this was ever appealed further, tried to be taken to the actual Supreme Court? There's no record. I looked and no, there's no record that it was. What do you think would have happened if they took it to this actual Supreme Court? Tell me the judges and I'll tell you the answer to that question. I'm not you know sure. What I mean? Yeah, you, yeah. Do you definitely. know what I mean? In other, yeah. in other words, uh, you know, if you get, if you got a traditionalist judge who, um, you, you know, like uh, Amy Coney, uh, Coney Barrett, the person that was just approved of the Supreme Court, and her mentor Scalia, they decide cases, they say, on basis of originalism. And by originalism, they mean what did the original writers of the legislation have in mind? They would probably have overturned it because the tradition is that that person from New York City can't just say, well, how was I supposed to know? That person from New York City, according to American law and the tradition of interactions between buyer and seller in the United States, that plaintiff was trying to shift responsibility onto the seller when the responsibility was his to find out about this. But other judges would not go in that direction, right? I mean, you wouldn't expect, you, you wouldn't expect, uh, Sotomayor, for example, to overturn this decision. You know, Neil, I think I've covered basically all the questions that I had uh, for you. Do you have any kind of last thoughts about this case? I think that the, the uh, significance of the case, at least for me, is it demonstrates the extent to which legal decisions are human decisions. Because here you have judges really making a surprise decision. And this is like, oh my gosh, they found for the plaintiff? Because ordinarily, in a situation like this, with most judges, this case is going to be decided differently. And if it had been decided differently, it would be cited more often because that's consistent with the traditions of American interaction between buyer and seller in the marketplace and it would just be one more of hundreds of precedents where the 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 seller is as long as the seller this was very important in this case ackley did not say to stambowski there are no ghosts in this house if 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 Ackley had said that, 
this decision would immediately have gone in favor of the plaintiff. But, but Ackley made no affirmation that was false. So it would be very, very difficult to us to charge Ackley with fraud because she made no positive assertion. But in a case like this where there is, she didn't say that there are no ghosts. So in a situation like this, you have a judge making a strange decision. Was it right or wrong? Well, I mean, I personally kind of like the decision, but that's because I probably am a lot more left wing than the typical judge would be. Uh, and I, I really think, I don't know about you, but as a consumer, I frequently feel lost. You know, if, if when I buy um, anything of any large value, I immediately hire people to uh, actually be my knowledge base because I know full well I'm not qualified to do most things in most areas of life that are complicated. I don't have the training. Uh, th think of the, think of on a, uh, when we go grocery shopping, the most simple kinds of decisions we make. I don't know that it really helps me to have those labels on the sides of the packages indicating whether it has yellow dye number five or how much niacin is in the, the product because I don't know enough about nutrition. I don't know enough about chemistry for those things. That, that information to even be useful to me. To me, it's just like, yeah, whatever. I'll take the one that's up high so I don't have to bend over very far. I mean, yeah, I, I hear you, Neil, because I mean, that's why I'm talking to you. I don't really know much about the legalese of everything. And this has been um, great and super eye opening about this. And there's something that you mentioned that I thought was interesting in there which was, this was an active fraud. Could you talk about the difference between fraud and active concealment and where that line is drawn? Well, that's tough. Um, and a lot of it has to do with whether there is a fiduciary duty by the one person in their relationships with the other person. So, for example, uh, when you go to a financial advisor, there's a lot of controversy in the financial community about the extent to which financial advisors have a fiduciary duty, meaning that they're supposed to act as if they are you. So, if, um, if there is a fiduciary duty, and it is not honored, that opens up a charge of fraud. But active concealment is different from that. Active concealment means I actually say I don't have a fiduciary duty when I do have a fiduciary duty. So active concealment requires you to tell a an affirmative lie fraud can just be you're not obeying the legal responsibilities that are established in statutes for you now there's all kinds of fraud there are actually four different kinds of fraud and we could 
really, really get into the weeds <laughs> talking about fraud. But, 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 but the, but the important difference between the two things is uh, that the person active concealment. You have to actually have said there are no poltergeists in this house. Um, so so you know, that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, got it. Well, that's great. That's awesome. oh, oh one is... one more thing, and I think this is highly relevant. I um. I and others have written law journal articles about what's called the business lie. And uh, just to kind of hammer home the point that I began with, which is that American law is relatively right-wing law. And um, I, I'm not, I'm not, either, I'm not complimenting and I'm not criticizing. I mean, I certainly have an attitude, but my, my point is, <laughs> My point is that American law is uh, right-wing law compared to what it, the law is in other industrialized countries. So when, when you think about um, businesses in general when they advertise, the universities, uh, my university um, has banners, all over the place on campus that are are not true you know we're number one at this we're number three at this and every university campus where i'm asked to consult all these banners the same ones i mean we can i i can take you in florida and there'll be there'll be two there'll be two buildings out there some little community college and they will have banners, number one in value, number one at this. Okay, so so what's the business lie? The business lie is legal. And what's meant by the business lie is, it's so absurd that nobody'd believe it. So say the judges. In actuality, all kinds of people believe it. If a 17-year-old and his or her parents come to my campus and they see a sign that says third greatest teachers in the United States. That, that parent and 17 year old think that there's some substantial truth to that banner. Now a few might be cynical. I would be, but, but most, most are like, Oh wow, look at this. And then, so the, and the PR people say, yeah, we're the third best in the country. Well, we're not, but how can they get away with that? Well, they get away with it because of the business lie and the way American courts work, and it's very unique, the way American courts work, as long as you say something that the judges say, oh, nobody'd believe that. For example, these, these are actual cases world's greatest pizza you you can advertise that that's not against the law world's greatest pizza you just put the sign out there and and the argument of the judges is oh come on that's not a problem nobody believes that and and you know what my parents would believe that and my wife's parents would believe that are you telling me i'm not drinking the world's greatest cup of coffee right now is that what you're telling me amazing you know? isn't it it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. 
It's amazing. And 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 uh, so they can tell. Uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, Lay's potato chip. The New York Attorney General filed suit against them for uh, false advertising, basically lying, because they said that Lay's potato chips were uh, the lightest potato chips available, and they had that out there on their packages. Lightest potato chips available. So the New York Attorney General files suit against them for false advertising, calls them in and says in court, on the record, could you please explain to us the data that shows you are lightest in calories of any potato chips? And the executives looked at each other and they, they're having a lot of fun and they looked at each other and they go, well, what do you mean? They said, well, the, the attorney general said, well, you said lightest. And they said, yeah, it is. What, you know, well, what's the data? And they go, well, everybody can see it. Now, what's the data? No, it's the lightest. So finally, the attorney general starting to catch on. And he says, well, what did you mean by lightest? And they say, the color, the color. And can you imagine how they laughed in the chauffeur's limousine after they went home? Because it's like, well, did, well, what did you think it meant? It means color. And of course, nobody who saw that thought of color, but it is, it does, they did happen to be really light in color and they were using that to sell potato chips. And that was, that was okay, because, well, nobody believed that. Well, Neil, I, I'm going to ask one last question, and that is, what would it take for a house to be actually legally considered haunted, like materially found haunted? What would that sure. take? Well, you have to distinguish between uh, having a reputation as haunted or materially haunted. A reputationally haunted, all you need is to have people in the community telling one another stories about various kinds of visitations, uh, various types of sighting, and there's a reputational haunting. Uh, people think that it's haunted. Now, as soon as you say materially haunted, things get a lot tougher. The great Randy, a person who was a master uh, illusionist and then halfway through his career started engaging in a different career, and that is debunking the paranormal. For example, one of the things that he debunked were the Philippine surgeons who did uh, surgery without making any cuts in the abdomen. So they used their hands to do surgery. And they had videos of doing surgery with hands. And that was one of the first things that he debunked. And so he had, during the second part of his life, he had uh, 
a $1 million standing offer for anyone who could conduct a miracle. And uh, some people showed up and they started doing their miracle and then they say, oh, well, I don't think I'll do it today. And the reason is, and it goes to your question, the reason is Randy always said, and this would be the answer to your question about materially haunted, something is true if you perform the activity and a member of the Stanford Physics Department and a master illusionist are in the room and they say, oh my gosh, I saw the poltergeist. Now, if, in other words, if you, if you take somebody from the scientific world and somebody from the illusionist world, the master illusionist world, and if they see it as something that is real, then there are ghosts here. And notice that is a really strict standard really hard to meet and quite different from reputationally haunted. Let us know if you would buy a haunted house on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by R.J. Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheremizanov.